I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. It's the last verse of the chapter. We'll be, begin, and then we'll read through chapter 9, verse 12. But once again, we do find ourselves in a, a sobering text this morning. John is writing from exile on the island of Patmos to the universal church in order to prepare them for the trials that they will inevitably face and to encourage them to persevere through those trials. And so the vision includes warning and encouragement throughout the book. Heavenly glory is oftentimes, and we've seen it in the first cycle and in the second cycle of the book, we've seen heavenly glory pictured followed by uh, kind of descriptions of uh, divine judgment, or at least warnings of divine judgment, as we saw in the letters. So last week, we began the, the second cycle of judgments, looking at the, the first four trumpets. And with each successive blast of the trumpet, judgment resulted. It resulted in the decreation of a third of the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sun, the moon, and the stars. A, a third of their light was darkened. You had sort of this idea of partial judgment. It's not full and final judgment, but it's partial judgment that is falling as those trumpet blasts are being blown. And, and these judgments ultimately cleanse God's creation of its corruption from sin. Well, what we'll see in this fifth trumpet, which is a lengthier passage, of course, we're just going to look at the fifth trumpet it really affords a, a peek behind the physical world into the evil spiritual realm and the misery that it afflicts upon unbelievers. And so the fifth trumpet, if I could summarize it, it would be like this. The fifth trumpet reveals the spiritual torment that eats away the hope of hardened unbelievers. And I trust that the Lord will use this passage to encourage us but also to challenge us. And there may be some conviction that we face as we read through this text. I do believe it's a message meant for us. The entire book of Revelation, right, was given to the church. It was given for us to be edified and equipped. So before we read this passage, let's ask him for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are dependent upon you by your Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of this passage. Lord, soften our hearts that we might respond in obedience. Bring conviction where that is needed. Bring comfort, Lord, by your gospel. Lord, help us to understand what you are saying. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew over, directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke 
like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses, like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, as, um, as I look at, at nature, I'm oftentimes just, I stand in awe, right, of God's creation, uh, especially his, his creatures. And I think some of the best images that you can view are of giant bald eagles swooping down at eye level. If you've never seen that in person, I certainly haven't, but I've seen some images. A friend of mine was recently on a, on a bike tour across uh, the country, and he was riding along on his motorcycle and didn't have his camera out, so don't worry, but I've seen the image from his GoPro. It was a GoPro video that he was recording of this um, particular stretch. This is a kind of a beautiful ride alongside a mountain. And there's this bald eagle flying in the opposite lane right next to him. Like he must have been 10 feet from him. And it, it, it's just this majestic scene. Um, my in-laws went on a cruise to Alaska. It's similar. They've got images of these, of really a, a, a convocation of eagles. I think that's the technical term, or a congregation of eagles coming down and, and, and devouring um, food that had been thrown into the ocean. And it, it, again, just a beautiful, remarkable scene. And, and maybe we don't really know what, how we're to read this. When we hear in verse 13 of this eagle crying out with a loud voice, are we to be in awe? Are we to stand and just appreciate this beautiful creature flying directly overhead? Is that what John did? Is that what he experienced? Certainly it would have been terrifying. Like, is that eagle about to pick me up? Is it about to claw its talons into me? Well, what does he say? He, John heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe. Well, the phrase directly overhead literally in the Greek is mid-heaven. And it occurs two other times in Revelation. The first time... It refers to an angel announcing Christ's return in judgment. In chapter 14, verse 6, it says this angel flies directly over ahead, and it's announcing this judgment that is to come in the second coming of Christ. And in chapter 19, verse 17, you have the birds gathering together and flying in mid-heaven or directly overhead to devour the flesh of the fallen at the end of the final battle. So at least in those two scenes, it's pretty 
obvious that this is a this is a a declaration of judgment to come. And obviously, we have the same here because that is what the eagle is saying. Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's obvious. It's not comfort, comfort, comfort. <laughs> so, what what does this mean? It's cons- well, it's consistent with several judgment announcements in the Old Testament. The eagle anticipates the destruction of judgment that will follow in the final three trumpets. So the woes of the final three trumpets directly target earth dwellers. Remember, the first four trumpets were targeting a third of the earth, the land, the sea. You had the, the sun, moon, and stars. It's, it's sort of... Now, when the environment is affected, of course, its inhabitants are impacted by that. In the third, I believe the, the third trumpet, you actually have um, death because of wormwood uh, poisoning the waters. Many people died. So it's obvious that even when it impacts the environment, it's still a, an indirect judgment on the people. They're impacted by that. But here we have a very direct judgment upon the people. The, the woes and the trumpet blasts are directly targeting um, the inhabitants of the earth. So that's this, this first point here is, is the targets of torment, the targets of torment if you're following along in your outline. And uh, the, the, the contrast is between those who are, uh, whose hearts are set upon the things of this world, dwelling on the earth, and those who by faith look forward, as Abraham did, right, to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Even though we are on earth right now, our citizenship is in heaven. Right? We are awaiting that city. We look forward to that with great hope. And so the earth dwellers here is, in, is not technically speaking of the church. It'll make that very clear in verse 4. Right? Later on, the locusts are told that they can only harm those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So this refers to those outside the invisible church. Notice I'm saying the invisible church, not the visible church, because there are people, imposters, who are in the visible church all throughout the church age. Right? There, there are tares among the wheat. And so, that is, so what, what this is describing is a separation between the, uh, those who, who serve God in truth and genuinely and then those who serve Satan. It makes that explicit separation in these final three trumpets. So how can we know? The first question I think that's important for us to wrestle with and ask in this passage is how can we know that we've been sealed by God? How can we know that we've received the indwelling Holy Spirit? There's several people that'll provide tests for you in order to determine whether or not you've been sealed. And some of those tests are, are unhelpful even unbiblical. But Paul encouraged the Corinthians with this. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? So what is he encouraging the Corinthian church to do there? Well, I think he's saying to... Look at the fruit in your life. Consider the the way you've responded to the salvation that you profess. 
So I think beginning, before I even give you some questions to ask and consider, we should acknowledge that some of us are more sensitive to these self-exams. And some of us are prone to do this in an unhealthy manner. We examine ourselves incessantly. We're just looking at ourselves all the time, never looking at Christ, looking at ourselves and kind of just beating ourselves up, right? We're just torturing ourselves with this. So maybe you have a pessimistic view of your own spirituality, your own spiritual growth. You're just, you know what, I, I, I don't really make any progress and it's not about me anyways, right? Maybe that's one of your struggles or dangers. Maybe you downplay what God has actually accomplished in you and through you. Maybe you focus too much on your failures and have a hard time recognizing any successes And so I do think I want to begin by saying, reflect carefully on these things. First of all, are your moral corruptions increasing unhindered, or has the Holy Spirit begun to cleanse the effect of sin upon your whole being? Just like sin has impacted you entirely, right? Your mind, your will, your conscience, your passions, just as sin has done that, total depravity, So has redemption. Christ begins to renew you in your mind, your will, your conscience, your passions. Is that taking place? Are your moral corruptions increasing unhindered, or has the Holy Spirit begun to cleanse the effect of sin upon your whole being? Will it happen perfectly in this life? No. Everything will be tainted by sin, but you will begin to be cleansed. There will begin a work of transformation in your heart. So how can we... The next question to consider would be, do you tend to minimize or excuse your sin, or do you hate it more and more? Heidelberg Catechism, question 89, says, what is the mortification of the old man? It says this, it is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sin and more and more to hate and flee from them. Should you be growing in hatred for your sin? Absolutely. More and more. Will it be perfect in this life? No. But you should be growing in hatred for your sin. Do you groan over the state of your own sin? Do you groan over your personal, even corporate, congregational sin? Do you groan over the sin that you witness in culture? Do you weep over it? That's the, that's the, the idea here that you would hate your sin more and more. Thirdly, are you losing interest or God in God or are you growing in love for him? Are you growing in your love for him with your heart, mind, soul, and strength? That should be something that indicates the work of God in your heart. Fourthly, do you tend to keep your sin hidden? When you sin, do you want to isolate yourself from others? Do you hide it from others? Or has the Holy Spirit given you the humility to confess your sin? To one another. And that's an indication of God at work in your life. And lastly, and maybe a, a, the most applicable to this text would be, does, does the experience of suffering cause you to question God, or has the Holy Spirit caused you to cling to him, to persevere? Right, when, when suffering and affliction come to your life, do you fall away from God, or do you fall towards him? You fall in face, in dependence upon him. 
Those are the kinds of impacts that, that the Holy Spirit will have in your life. And we could easily add more questions, but I think this is helpful to begin with. Question, some of those, I'm sure, are harder for you to answer than others. Um, some of them you know, may, uh, may take some time for you to reflect upon, and others may immediately sting when you hear it. But don't neglect the process. As Paul encourages us to, we need to do this. Hopefully, they will drive you to repentance or affirm the Spirit's work in your life so that you might be renewed in your praise of Him, that you might give Him the glory for the fruit that you've been able to bear. So those that have not been sealed is the the targets of the trumpets. Um, But the locusts, even in these first few verses of chapter 9, have have several limitations placed upon them. How the locusts are released reveals the the limits of their power. First of all, the the angel's blast of his trumpet sends a star, which is most likely a fallen angel, possibly even Satan, um, which would be described in verse 11, so it would be the same as the prince of the bottomless pit. Um, But... Either way, it's, it's most likely a fallen angel, and it comes to the earth where it is given a key to release the locust from the bottomless pit. So the star, it says, was given the key. The star was given authority, which then implies subjection to a greater authority. And if you're receiving authority from someone else, then the greater authority is, is the ultimate power. The locusts were given power, it says, like scorpions. Um, In verse 5, their power to inflict harm was limited in both duration and scope. They were given five months to torment the unsealed inhabitants of the earth, but they could not kill them. And so both in, in duration and scope, they were limited. Revelation 20, verse 1, describes an angel that was given the key to the bottomless pit, but in that scene, this, uh, the dragon is seized and bound and thrown into the pit for a thousand years. And I believe these, these two judgments are parallel judgments taking place. While Satan was bound from deceiving the nations during this present age, he and his minions still have limited authority to torment Earth's inhabitants. And I believe that's a consistent way of reading Revelation and, and the parallel passages. When Jesus casts out the legions of demons from the man in Luke chapter 8, they asked that they be sent directly into the abyss. And Jesus allowed them to enter into a herd of pigs instead. And that confirmed not only their large number that were tormenting this man, but also it confirmed Christ's authority over the unclean spirits. They had to ask him, they had to request to not be sent into the abyss. And their fear of going into the abyss says something about the abyss, right? In, in the Greek, abusos is translated abyss, or in Revelation, it's translated bottomless pit. It's the, it's the same word in Greek. John and, and, um, and, and Luke use the same word. So the reluctance of the demons to depart into the abyss indicates that it's a place of torment for demons awaiting their final judgment. That's what Peter tells us. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so this abyss, this bottomless pit here is the same place that Peter's speaking of. If, and here's the, the encouragement for us. If God has placed restrictions upon demonic activity, then we know that he is able to protect his saints from harm. Luke 18, where, where, which is also a parallel passage. Um, Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 10, verse 18, we read this. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Possibly the same star that is being described there in Revelation 9. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you, his disciples, the 72 who have come back, who have returned from their work of evangelism, he gives them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Right? What's most important is that we have been sealed. Our names have been written in heaven. That is what we should rejoice in. But it is encouraging, is it not, to know that Satan is like a charging dog whose leash keeps choking him out before he gets to you. And he can't touch you. I love how Martin Luther puts it in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. So those of us who've been sealed have no need to fear. Right? We know that God is ultimately in control. It's the lamb who determines how far and wide the devastation of the locusts will be. And he has determined that they cannot harm his followers. So we can rest and we can trust in him. And despite the significant limitations that God has placed upon demonic activity, it is still capable of causing severe torment for unbelievers. And that's what you find in verses 5 and 6, the severity of torment. Although it would only last five months, and no one would die from the locust attacks, the severity of their torment was great. And spiritual torment can seem worse than death for those going through it. People experiencing the wrath of Apollyon's army would rather die, but they will be unable to escape their misery. And so just as those fleeing from the wrath of the lamb in the sixth seal were crying out to the rocks to fall upon them, in chapter 6, verse 16, so the victims of the locust attack in the fifth trumpet would seek death, but be unable to find it. And this is consistent with what Jeremiah prophesied. He said, death shall be preferred to life. He was speaking there of the remnants of evil families left in Israel. Because even though they belonged to that covenant community, there was only a remnant of them that was truly faithful. And he says it would, they would prefer death to life. 
you're seeing the same thing here. The depravity of sin does not bring contentment and lasting joy. This imagery conveys the, the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual turmoil that accompanies all who follow the prince of darkness. They do not live a life of peace. Rather, they are in frequent distress. And regardless of where they turn, and they turn to anything and everything that they can, nothing brings lasting relief. The torment is a present reality. That is, that is something we can presently picture and see. We can expect it to increase as we near the final day of judgment. So here's, here's the, the application. Your unbelieving family, your unbelieving family, friends, and neighbors, they may be able to hide that fear for a while. They may be able to suppress that truth. But eventually, their conscience will either become so numb that they will lose all inhibitions, or with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, it will eat up any vestiges of pride and self-sufficiency and bring them to repentance. And on the other hand, if you've been sealed by God, you know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. You, too, might long for death. But what does Paul say in Philippians? To live is Christ and to die is gain. So he was hard-pressed between the two. What do I want more? To be with Christ or to live for him in this this present age and and give to you the strength and encouragement you need as his church? And that that was Paul's longing, his desire. And obviously, he knew it was far better to be with Christ, but he had a work. Christ had a work for him to do, and he knew that. And so he pressed on, and he endured, and he persevered through the trials that he faced on a daily basis. And he, he did so with confidence that God would protect him. And so this section concludes with the description of these locusts in verses 7 through 11, and we're not going to get caught up in, in trying to understand every little nuance of the description. Dispensationalist um, Hal Lindsey and I'm not saying every dispensationalist has this interpretation, but Hal Lindsey uh, promotes and argues that these locusts are Chinese attack helicopters. Now, that interpretation would be impossible, absolutely impossible for the original audience to understand. Right? No way would they have envisioned these locusts as helicopters from China. It's, it's, it's absurd, right? And, and not only is it absurd to the first original audience, it's absurd to the first 20 centuries of the church. None of them would have able, been able to understand it rightly if that is the proper interpretation. So how do we understand these locusts? Well, once again, we see the trumpets that allude to one of the Egyptian plagues. We saw that with the first four trumpets as well. They allude to the Egyptian plagues. Locusts were the eighth plague, and they ate up all of Egypt's trees and vegetation that were left after the destruction of the hail and the fire of the seventh plague. You can read about that in Exodus 10. Joel also describes the day of the Lord with similar language. He talks about a plague of locusts coming upon the land in Joel chapter 1. The priests are unable to make sacrifices of grain and drink offering because the fruit of their land has been consumed. So their attack upon Israel is like the appearance of horses in Joel, the rumbling of chariots, 
and a flame of fire that devours the stubble, all very similar language to what we read in, in this description. So locusts were associated with famine. We've seen that repeatedly, right? This idea of a famine, because once a locust swarmed a region, they left the place bone dry. Right? They, they left regions lifeless and hopeless. However, what do we find in Revelation? I'm about to take out this. Um, we find in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, that this, these locusts do not eat up the vegetation. It says, they were not told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It's the opposite of what we anticipate a locust to do. They were only permitted to harm unbelievers, and, and what's being reflected here is, is famine, but it's a spiritual famine. Right, a famine that leaves the souls of unbelievers lifeless and empty. That's the parallel. Prevented from bringing any real harm to the church, Apollyon's army brings as much damage upon mankind as he is allowed. And then we read of the first woe passing in verse 12. Behold, two woes are still to come. So this doesn't refer to the chronological order of events. Remember, it's referring to John, how John saw the vision, the order of the vision in which he saw it. So he's, he heard and saw the fifth trumpet, and now he's going to hear and see the, the sixth and seventh trumpets. So the description uh, runs, or the events that are being described here run parallel. The fifth trumpet reveals the spiritual torment that eats away the hope of hardened unbelievers. But maybe you're not quite as hardened as Pharaoh was. Maybe you're, you're here because you're seeking to learn more. You're not a believer, but you're curious about Christianity. Well, that might be evidence of the Spirit drawing you to himself. And this passage reveals where a continued and a remaining unbelief will leave you. Right? It's only a matter of time before the torment eradicates every last ounce of your hope. The only way to avoid the torment of hell is to receive the promised seal of God's salvation. Right, repent and believe in Christ. Only through his cleansing blood can your, your torment become everlasting joy. It's a message, if the message to unbelievers is that they are miserable and without hope, save in the sovereign mercy of Christ, then the message to believers is one of joyful hope. The fact that we are not getting what we deserve should fill us with tremendous gratitude. Instead of punishment, we receive pardon. Instead of misery, we receive mercy. Instead of agony, we find acceptance in the family of God. We've been adopted. And so that's the exchange that the gospel promises to those who turn away from their sin and place their hope in Christ alone for their salvation. So let us turn to him now with grateful hearts for his redemptive work. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder that you protect us, that you've not only rescued us 
And although we do go through times of wilderness, even as the generation that was brought out of Egypt went through a season of suffering and trials, Lord, we know we also experience those same kinds of trials. We know that we go through affliction, and yet we know that that affliction is not coming for the demonic activity because you have protected us from that. You have sealed us. You have assured that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And so we rest in that truth, and we are comforted by it. And we want to be filled with joy in our response or to your faithfulness. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite